When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Michael Phillips. I didn't touch the door. What? It was already open. The door was open when you got there? Yeah. Well, then who opened the door? Yeah. I don't know. I mean... Maybe Andrew? What? That clip from the new sorta horror film, It Comes at Night, which opened in wide release last weekend. Horror, not typically our bag on this show, Michael, as you know, but night director Trey Edward Schultz got our attention last year with his stunning debut, Cretia. And yes, he manages to work up quite a bit of dread with the question of an open door. An open door in Chicago in the summer with the air conditioning on? <laughs> Horrific, right? I, you kids, I don't go to work so we can pay to cool the outdoors. You... <laughs> That review, plus a cheerful summer top five list, movies about grief and more ahead on Film Spotting. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk. This week, Josh is off gallivanting across England. Well, at least London. And actually, I know he's going to take the family out. They're going to see the countryside. And he's been having some fun with Film Spotting listeners, putting several pints on the Film Spotting credit card. I'm nice. okay with it, Michael. I'm okay with it. <laughs> Here in his place is Michael Phillips, no British accent. Could you do a show with a British accent if we really needed it? Uh, no, this is this is public radio. You can find a real legitimate accent of any sort True. if you just look hard enough, for True. God's sake. So, yeah. Michael, of course, from the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. And a frequent contributor here on the show. You wrote in the Tribune this week about the passing of Glenn Headley, the mm. actress, Adam West, of course, Batman passing away in this past week as well. And I think of Headley from Mr. Holland's Opus, the wife in that film. Others may remember her from Dick Tracy or Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And of course, she was a Steppenwolf ensemble member as well. I saw her. She joined the company uh, Steppenwolf Theater here in Chicago back in the early 80s. I saw her in New York in 1984 when a Steppenwolf Theater production of the Lanford Wilson play Bomb and Gilead had transferred to uh, a long-running production in New York. Fantastic. And, hmm. you know, Laurie Metcalf, who just won the Tony, yep. uh, uh, you know, it was it was an amazing company. And John Malkovich directed it. Uh, Malkovich and Headley were married at the time. And Headley, I just, I just think, you know, really, it was really that was a tough loss to hear that. She had a, a, an amazingly light touch with all kinds of things, drama, but especially comedy. And nobody looked more comfortable in period comedy on stage. And also, the kind of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was set in the present, you know, in the eighties on the French Riviera. But that's a that's a classic thirties screwball. You know, Ernst Lubitsch sort of, you know, a little roughed up, but kind of an Ernst Lubitsch world of, you know, you know, these these sort of high flying counters. She was she had a great light touch, hmm. and I love it. Dick Tracy's a film I've always been completely conflicted about, frankly, really? and 
you know, I don't really even know what style they're going for half the time, but that scene, there's one scene in particular where Headley as Tess Truhart is in the car at night with Warren Beatty as Tracy, and there's a, just a very quiet scene between the two of them, and you just sort of notice, you know, what do you know? Warren Beatty has turned into a really good actor here. <laughs> I've been thinking, Tess. What about? Well, you live alone. I like living alone. Huh? You know that? I'm not the lonely type. Well... That's something we got in common. Yeah, we have that in common. Well, don't you think that since we have so much in common, it might be a good idea if we just went ahead and... Yes. She, she makes others better. She just makes, you know, and it's exa- And I asked Beatty about it. I actually asked Beatty about it last year. He said the same thing happened the first time I ever acted with Gene Hackman. Just a, a naturalness that just that throws everything out, and you're just sort of on your game, but you're also relaxed. Mm. And that's what she could do. Yeah. Well, loss is certainly going to be a key part of this week's show. Our top five movies about grief. This was inspired by my conversation last week on the show with It Comes at Night director Trey Schultz. He wrote the film in the wake of his father's death, something I didn't know until we had that conversation. And that's where this concept sprung out of. So we will wrestle with that and those movies here later in the show. But first, during that conversation with Trey, I asked him to describe his movie. He went with, quote, not a conventional horror film, unquote. I don't know, Michael, a cabin in the woods, a deadly virus, a desperate family seeking refuge from an unnamed terror and a bright red colored door. How unconventional could it be? I just want to talk. And I want honest answers. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? you and your family. I want to thank you again for letting us stay here. Just going to run through a few things. When we go out during the day, we like to stick to groups just for safety. The red door. It's the only way in and out of the house. It stays closed and locked all the time. (laughs) I have the keys. It's the only set. (laughs) Most important thing. What's he see? It's okay. Just go inside. Never go out at night. Adam, A24 is the film distribution company that did so well by last year's big Oscar winner, Moonlight, and another film I really loved, Robert Eggers' supernatural thriller, The Witch. Now, in order to get a hold of writer-director Trey Edward Schultz's second film, which we're about to discuss, A24 picked up his remarkable first film, Cretia, which you mentioned, We both loved it, and really that was just a down payment for the second project. And that film is It Comes at Night. And it sounds like you could, if you wanted to, make a pretty straightforward post-apocalyptic drama out of Schultz's story. There's a killer plague ravaging the population, and deep in the woods somewhere, a family of four, father, mother, son, and grandfather, has found an abandoned house they've turned into their compound. But at the very beginning of Schultz's picture, the grandfather has become infected beyond the pale, and no spoiler here since it's the first five minutes, the mother, played by Carmen Ajogo, says her anguished goodbyes, and then the father, played by Joel Egerton, shoots him dead while their teenage son, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., looks on and wonders what the hell has happened to the world he used to know. So from there, the survivors take in another family of three, and it comes at night 
turns into a combination of who's next, kind of a guessing game about who's going to get infected, a study in justifiable paranoia, and most especially, I think, a portrait in how grief and loss can shape one young man's coming of age. Adam, two questions for you as we get into this discussion. Mm -hmm. Did this film take you into the woods to somewhere you hadn't been before? And, number two, has Trey Edward Schultz, whose father's death, as you mentioned, inspired the screenplay, managed to do the improbable, not the impossible, but the improbable, that is, has he avoided the filmmaker's dreaded sophomore slump? (laughs) Yeah, I think the answer is yes to both. I think I'm a little bit higher on Cretia, but I did very much enjoy, if that's even a word you can throw around with this movie, It Comes at Night, because it's a film so loaded with dread. I did enjoy this movie, and he certainly took me there into the woods. It's funny about one of the details you mentioned there in your synopsis, the family finding this place out in the woods. You may be completely right. It's entirely possible. I completely missed something. I think it speaks to the ambiguity of this film. I just assumed that was actually their place. Oh, okay. I assumed that the family lived there. Uh, but the point is... Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I don't think you probably are. I don't... Well, I don't either, secretly. I mean, I don't really not. deep down think I'm wrong. <laughs> but, I, you know, well, for, for the sake of argument. My point is, I don't think Trey... Schultz really cares whether we know the answer to that or not. There are a lot of unanswered questions right, with the this nature film. Of the, the nature of the, the nature play. of that play, exactly. That. And I love the fact that we really don't get anything about it whatsoever with this really stripped down film. Of course, we are talking about Cretia a little bit here, and it's funny because it's the first film, at least in terms of release date. It's the one with less narrative, at least in its scope, I think, and it has more tricks up its sleeve visually. But Night feels to me almost more like an experiment in tone and psychological horror than Cretia did. I think that may be because I connected more with the characters in Cretia mm. than I did really with any of the characters in this film. And I think that Cretia as well was more direct in saying something about family dynamics, dysfunctional family dynamics, and addiction as well, which is such a prominent part of that film. I think Knight is potentially saying something quite profound about grief and how we process it. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I wonder if you had a similar reaction, Michael, and that it makes some sense that we've got this movie very much about grief that I'm still processing Mm. in the way anyone who has suffered a loss is always in a state of still processing. The way there are no real lessons, there are no explanations to latch on to, I think he put us in that position. If that was his goal, he certainly succeeded. That's that, that, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I found this C.S. Lewis quote, and he's not even a writer I, I know that well, but, but here's what he said about grief. Grief feels like fear, perhaps more strictly like suspense or like waiting, just hanging about waiting for something to happen. Huh. And they're right next door to each other. And I think, absolutely, I think Schultz, is really kind of asking a lot of audiences with It Comes at Night. He's asking a lot of patience uh, yes. because there's not a lot of uh, jump scares in this thing. Um, I think he's asking a lot in terms of just how much true sadness and loss he's going he's gonna to require of people watching. You know, what, what may be, I think, on the, from the ads and really from the entire ad campaign, 824 is coming up, but it just looks like kind of a... You know, kind of a straight-ahead horror film. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's I guess that's their job, to get people in the first week or two. But like like they had with The Witch, the Eggers film, I think they're going to run into a little bit of a problem with people, and they already have, I think, people just sort of saying, where where is it? Where's the horror film I was expecting? Mm-hmm. It Comes at Night is a very different film. And it, it is. And it is, you know, it's much more about internal demons rather than external ones, despite that title. And... It's. I think its its effectiveness is completely reliant on 
whether or not you can adjust your own rhythm to the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I think the filmmaking is strong enough that that I found myself slipping into it and just sort of kind of entering the trance state of this whole this whole picture because it's it's uh, you know it's a second film and it's you know it's he had a few million to work with not many but it it uh, it it behaves like a micro budget indie it's not there's not there's hardly any audience concessions at all in this picture no and i appreciate it you know i guess in terms of me thinking he's a really strong filmmaker i would like to see him you know eat regularly for example <laughs> this is a film that you actually might um, i might have wanted a little more kind of Really, kind of gut grinding suspense, or something truly sure. a little less tame or well behaved. But okay. but but the film has has like maybe with you too. I think it's just kind of it's sort of stuck with me for days. Yeah, and you know if you, if you find it, maybe you'll like it. Yeah, some <laughs> of the audience reaction or that audience frustration that you are referring to, if you don't get on the same tempo with this movie, was exhibited in my screening. On a Sunday morning, not many people at my Sunday morning screening. Yes, you saw it comes at morning. <laughs> it comes at not morning. A, not it comes not at as night. effective. <laughs> and it comes around 930. <laughs> maybe because it was such a quiet film even by the end and because there were so few people in the theater that I could hear someone a couple rows over at the end of the film say out loud, are you effing serious? Oh, no, really? And I've seen on Twitter a few other reactions like that. I think yeah. that there really is a case where maybe some people are coming into this film with much different expectations than the film they get. And as you said, such a bleak, sad bleak. film, it ultimately. Is. And if it you're is. looking for any of that relief, you're really not going to get it. I mentioned that I didn't connect with the characters as much. I hope I don't have to connect with the characters in terms of what they're going through as much as maybe I did with Cresha or other films. What really kept me on edge, though, what really kept me into this film was the situation, Mm -hmm. the setting, the way it's captured, and the slow burn of it all. This is the slowest burn ever. It functions very differently from Cresha, I think, and a lot of other horror movies or thrillers in that there's usually, this is that maybe intensity you were talking about, Michael. You're anticipating something big. It could be something tragic. It could be something horrific or something heroic. And that has you, of course, so to speak, on the edge of your seat. Here, it's just a constant claustrophobic pressure that I felt from the opening frame until the last frame of this movie. I really did, 10, 15 minutes after this movie, feel it still. It was only after about a half an hour that I felt a release, that I was able to let this movie go and leave the theater behind. And it is hard for any viewer to exist in that state of dread for that long, it's also very hard for a filmmaker to pull off. You know what you're in for in the first three, five minutes, because the way he treats the death of the grandfather, where it's the first time we see what what the, the plague victims look like, and it's not it's not like an elaborate, massive amount of special effects or you know anything digital or otherwise. It's it's just simply you know kind of startling, and then really, really a painful goodbye. Mm-hmm. And, and and he's playing it for for honest to god human stakes, and that's the strength of this filmmaker. And I think this film. And yeah. we talk when I talked to Schultz when he was in town doing interviews. We uh, talked a little bit about Get Out, Jordan Peele's film, uh, because... I thought about it, too. You know, Peele Mm -hmm. went through one ending that was much harsher, much bleaker, Mm -hmm. and uh, the people at Blumhouse, the distributors, had a little talk with them, and it wasn't like, you must do this, but it was really like, you know, in so many words, I think, he, he was told... 
If you want to make about 40 or 50 million more, you might, do you have any other, do you have a variation on this ending you can try? And it's, it's, you know, the ending, we can talk about the ending of Get Out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a much, uh, you know, by the time the, the retribution violence kicks in and you, and you get, you get the resolution and Get Out, I think the audience was good and ready for it. And to Absolutely. me, it was well done enough. It didn't feel like a sellout. And I wish, I wish, part of me wishes that Trey Edward Schultz had a little bit more of that in him, maybe, as a, as a storyteller, at least with this picture, and mm-hmm. th- the film had a little more of that. Nonetheless, I admire it, and it gave me the cold creeps. And the thing I liked best about it, Adam, is that for such a confined setting, I mean, the whole film mm-hmm. isn't, isn't just in the house. I mean, he's making good use of you know, the area around Woodstock, New York, where the film was shot. But uh, he really does think cinematically, and not digitally cinema, but I mean, he really shoots... Beautiful widescreen yes. imagery. I think you know he's he's shooting digitally, but it, I mean they've really figured out how to make inky black shadows pick up some detail, and uh, there's a lot of camera movement uh, that that reveals that Schultz really does know how to. He has an interest in the interaction between a moving camera and characters under duress, and you saw that in Cretia. You see that here. Just just in terms of cinematic mm-hmm. chops, this guy already has an awful lot going. He certainly does. And I will admit as well that I felt probably some of that same frustration you did and many audience members did at the end of the film. I'm going to link to an article in our show notes if anyone's curious. I did find an article that has some comments from Trey Schultz, though he certainly doesn't explain the movie by any means. He definitely doesn't want to do that. But Matt Patches is the writer. It was at Thrillist.com. And it does certainly get into spoilers. Don't read unless you've seen the movie, unless you want to reckon with it. And there was one detail, again, it's some of these details. There was one detail that Patches mentions just as a given about the last shot of the film Hmm. that I'll tell you, I didn't pick up on. And it changes my view of the ending a little bit. It hmm. changes my understanding of where the characters are. Oh, I can't wait in to the end of the film. So, I probably missed it too. So off air we could we could talk about that and maybe we can give it some time on a future show as more people have seen this movie. I hope more people do get to see this movie. And you're talking about the way he uses the camera and I was speaking to the way it really just consumed me in terms of its sense of claustrophobia. There's a couple real key scenes that are proof of that, Michael. One is where, this isn't so much visually, but it's the buildup to this moment where a character slips up and says something that seems to contradict something he said before. Yeah, and it I know could be you're talking about. Yeah, Christopher yeah, yeah. Abbott, I'll say, is the actor, very good actor. Yeah. He plays a key part in this film. And his explanation for that contradiction is understandable and believable, yeah. more or less. plausible You can You can buy it if you want to. And there is such a long pause. Schultz just lets us stew in that awkward silence for so long that I felt like I wanted to yell at the screen to have the character who was being lied to, maybe, react. I wanted him to do something. I wanted him to take action. I needed some kind of, I suppose, catharsis or maybe even violence in that moment. I felt it. Well, we're trained, there. as moviegoers, Adam, we're trained, right. we're trained to expect it, whether or not, you know, it, 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 you know, that's the great thing about the cinema. It, it absolutely plays to our basis instincts all the It time. does. Even, even if a film is clearly heading in a, in a in a different direction. As, mm-hmm. as you know, right away uh, with It Comes at Night, you know, you, you know you're going to get a different kind of suspense and a very methodical sort of, um, you know, examination of what, 
what what this degree of paranoia could do to people, and especially when I think the movie, the reason the movie works more than not mm-hmm. is is that when this other family kind of stumbles into the, this this family's lives and basically says, "Please put us up. We're we're you know we're going to die out mm-hmm. there," and then they reluctantly take them in. You know, we're experiencing kind of the relationships all through the young man's eyes, and. You know, there's a sexual attraction to one character that, you know, he can't act on. And uh, there's an awful lot of um, uh, the son's dream life Mm -hmm. and sort of dreamscape that becomes a part of the fabric of the picture. And he doesn't know how much to trust what he's sort of imagining and dreaming. Um, And and nothing new there really in terms of a film strategy, Mm -hmm. but but it's, it's quite effective. And it's all... It's all part of the same kind of slipstream of, of dread, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, dread is not movie uh, your average moviegoer's favorite type of suspense, though. You know, dread is a different thing. It's, yes. it's grimmer, sadder, more difficult. And suspense... More honest, more realistic. More honest, more realistic. And, you know, this is, this is Trey Schultz. You know, it's like the guy who made Cretia, which is... You know, it's about as personal as filmmaking can get in American independent cinema. I mean, he shot it at his mom's house. He used his aunt to play kind of a fictionalized version of another family member. You know, it's all, you know, he's using family members, his, you know, locations he knows. And that really is all one house. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of that going still with It Comes at Night. And, you know, he's got an interest in genre filmmaking. So we'll, I, I am really fascinated to see where he yeah. goes after this. Um, you know, this one's about a two-third success. And for me, honestly, it's been kind of a week, few, you know, months here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's good enough for me. Yeah, I definitely want to touch on a couple things you mentioned, but I also wanted to throw out the scene, the other example of a scene where I knew he had me completely. He got me to pull a Rosemary's Baby. I always remember Polanski talking about a scene, or maybe it was someone else associated with the film, talking about a scene where he sort of has Ruth Gordon go behind a door, and I think she's talking on the phone, and the door just stays open just a little just a little <laughs> bit. So Mia Farrow and us seeing her point of view can just kind of see in, but we want to see what Ruth Gordon's up to. And this person recounting the story talked about the whole audience kind of craning their neck <laughs> around the door. Yeah, Michael, I'm not kidding. That happened to me at a moment in this film, and it revolves around that bright red door. Which where, the whole premise is the father, Joel Edgerton character is saying, you know, whatever you do, do not go behind this door. Exactly. So, I mean, the setup yeah. is is hilariously obvious. Yeah, it but, makes I, I me mean, think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah, and yeah. the Green Door, But of not course. campy, but just very no, simple. Very not simple. campy yeah. at all, but then when that door is open and you hear some bad things going on on the other side, Trey doesn't let us see, and I did physically shift in my seat and try to look around. I'm not that bright, Michael, apparently, but that's how successful this movie was from a visual standpoint. And you talked about the use of widescreen. How about the use of aspect ratios, which is something he did as well in Mm, Cretia. More blatantly, he touched on this in my interview with him, that he wanted to make it more subtle. It really is more subtle here because I think you have to go back after seeing one widescreen shot that I'll just say happens very late in the film at a moment when things are at their most chaotic. And I think fair to say their worst. Mm -hmm. That's when I really noticed. And when it kicked in that, oh, actually, he has used that aspect ratio a couple other times. And I think it it forces you to maybe want to rethink the film a little bit in terms of how he employs that strategy at certain points. And what that widescreen does in that moment, I'll say is you're so used to those shots the widescreen, the really wide frame being employed with these great landscapes and these kind of vistas. And instead, when you show a close-up in it, when it's an extreme close-up, it really intensifies 
kind of that character's dissociation from everything, from his surroundings. Right. It makes it immediately that much more off, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And that, that moment is definitely an off moment. But I think that there are a lot of different ways you could try to interpret this film that, as I said, you either can write it off like some people are or choose to continue to wrestle with it. And I think about what the it of the title is. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that there is the potential to argue that there are monsters in this film, that there is something else, some kind of monster that may be lurking that plays a role in this movie that may or may not be one's interpretation. But for me, it really came down to this idea of the grief, seeing the movie as this allegorical or I suppose metaphorical exploration of grief and that what comes at night is that pain. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. that grief because we see some moments and of course they feel it. (laughs) They're aware of their grief as we all are during the day too. But what happens at this film is we do get some moments where once they connect with this other family, it's almost like things are normal. During the day, I think you can distract yourself. You can interact with other people. You can change up your routine or get caught up in a routine that allows you to be distracted from your pain. What happens at night, what very much happens at night in this film is you're alone. And you're isolated. And you're isolated with that pain. Right. And, and all you see your, how and, it manifests. And all your doubts and suspicions. Exactly. And, and there's also, there's just, most films along these lines have, have fewer and more, obviously, melodramatic dream sequences. There's actually a fair number of dream sequences there are. in this film. And they tend to be... Uh, Kind of sinister in a lower key way, and they're and and a little cryptic, and it's really just part of the young man's um, life. You know, it's a, his dream life is not is not a happy one. You know, no. situations there, and I think that's yeah. I think you can read that without getting too metaphorically obvious sure. about it. I think that's the way to read it. Yeah. You also mentioned how we see a good chunk of this film through the eyes of one of the characters. It's through the son character here, and I'm sure I wouldn't have thought of this, and I think I'm. Certainly stretching anyway, but I wouldn't have thought of this had I not sat across from Trey Schultz and had him tell me just how personal this movie was and what he was wrestling with when he wrote it. But I wonder if there is a a filmmaker interpretation to this movie, too, in that the Travis character could be a stand in in some ways for Trey, because one thing that the movie certainly shows us throughout is that he's an observer. We don't get to see him looking at a lot in terms of the other dynamics in the in the house, but he's always listening. He's paying attention to these little dramas that are playing out between his parents, between the other couple. And one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he has a big laugh at an exchange between those two characters, Will and Kim. And it might be the only laugh we really get in the entire film. Right, right. In its entire running time. But it's because it's this interaction between them that seems so naive and innocent in the way couples should really behave with each other. Right. It's an interaction that his parents have completely uh, it's, lost. And that's why, it's why the film has, you know, is frankly pretty heartbreaking, you know, and, and again, not an easy watch because, no. uh, you know, as difficult as the subject matter was in Cretia, you know, you have, you know, it's a, you have substance abuse and, you know, really tough family relations and, and this, this really fractured sort of extended family situation and, um, you know, and, and, and Schultz was playing basically a variation on himself in that film going through all this. Yeah. He, he said, I'm sure you might have said the same thing to you. He told me that making It Comes at Night in the wake of the death of his father 
was 15 times more difficult emotionally. <laughs> and you, you think, again, oh, it's just a genre horror film. You know, it, it, it can't be as hard as the searing, you know, micro-budget indie about shot in my mother's house about, you know, about alcohol and substance abuse. <laughs> it, you know, surely this will be a, a little break from that. It's actually harder. Yeah. And, and, the, but, and there's a similar tonal quality to the both pictures, I think, as, as a viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, I mean, everything we're saying is in code, spelling out the reasons why it's not going to make get out money. No, <laughs> you know it's I mean? definitely not. But but it's but not not to say that they had even remotely similar intentions. But um, you, you know that I do I do appreciate when any filmmaker takes a picture that has genre capabilities and sort of possibilities and can get an audience in, but then really screw up your perceptions a little yes. bit and mess with your expectations. Yeah. And, and, you know, for better or for worse, it's it, it's it's a reminder that you don't you follow a blueprint to the point where you can throw it away and then, you know, just sort of wing it. Yeah. I, I will, in closing, just say that that filmmaker interpretation I'm trying to throw out there, it's not just that he's an observer, but like a lot of artists, like film makers, he observes and then those observations get arguably translated into visions. Yeah. Though they're not films, they're not a work of art, they are these nightmares that we see play out from his perspective. So there's a lot going on, even though there's actually not much going on in this film because it is such a deliberate and understated movie. Right, right. And I, I honestly, Adam, more than most films, I really can't wait to hear what some of the film spotting crowd thinks of it. Me I, too. I, this is, I just think this is going to be, this is destined to be a splitter. And that's also a sign that the film and the filmmaker has something going on that yeah. other people may not. It Comes at Night is currently out in wide release. And as you just heard Michael say, we want your feedback. We hope you've seen it. Or if you do get a chance to see it, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. But more importantly, Adam, Thor yeah. versus Spidey. Let's get to the heavy stuff. Okay, versus Aquaman. Oh, it's always good to get film spotting listeners to weigh in on the most urgent matters of the day. Film spotting polls are next, plus the top five movies about grief. Stay with us. He don't need a crowbar to break away the door. No, he don't need a blueprint of your house's first floor. Oh, and he don't need a window, even if it's left ajar. Cause the devil can get in when Propaganda on the screen Oh, he don't need a cult or a killing machine Oh, he needs a fragile and impressionable These issues may seem trivial. They need to be addressed. Where do you think we go from here? I don't know. What if we turned all our fights into songs? 
Let's start a band. We're going to get to our poll results in just a bit, plus our top five movies about grief. But we do have, finally, a little bit of golden brick spotting. We are going to nominate another film for our coveted Golden Brick Award, the award we give out at the end of the year to the movie that we think it flew under the radar, but it deserved more attention. It's usually from a new or emerging filmmaker, Mm -hmm. shows a real artistic vision, and the movie you just heard a clip from, Band-Aid, I think, qualifies. It should at least be in the running. You heard Zoe Lister-Jones with Adam Pally. They play a married couple attempting to repair their marriage by, as you heard, starting a band, another member of that band, their weird neighbor, played by Fred Armisen, a drummer in real life, a drummer here in this movie. It was a breakout hit at Sundance this past year. Michael, you were there. You did not get a chance to see it, but you have caught up with it. Did yep. you enjoy it? Yeah, cla- this, I did. I did. And I'm, uh, it's a classic Sundance experience for me, Adam. I, I usually, if when I go to Sundance, I go for the first 43% of the festival and I miss, you know, <laughs> the vast majority of everything. And this is one I missed there. So I saw this, you know, this afternoon before the taping. Okay. Know? Well, yeah. at least you did your homework. And I did. And, and, and Lister Jones, I think is a real talent. And, uh, you know, she and Adam Pally are, uh, have, you know, very interesting and kind of distinctive comic chops. They're really good together. I think she's got the edge as a performer, as a kind of a dramatic performer, as well as 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 well as a really sidewinding, interesting, witty comic actress, yeah. he's pretty good. And Armisen is narrower still in his <laughs> range, but you know he's used about the right amount. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's and it's got that sort of. I hate to, I hate to use it as a style, a shorthand description of a style, but it's got that sort of. You know, kind of shambling Parks and Rec handheld semi-documentary mm-hmm. approach. But the advantage of that is it's not it's not stupid sitcom technique dragged into the movies. It's actually kind of uh, you know a lot of medium shots and a lot of kind of casual mm-hmm. documentary stuff. That that makes the humor a little more natural and doesn't really push for the laughs. And I think it's actually kind of a <laughs> you know it's a funny, sad portrait of a of a kind of a messed up marriage that actually does find some, you know, release and some redemption in like, well, uh, maybe we can turn the, our relentless uh, uh, nagging arguments and fights into songs. Yeah. We will, we will, and that's a funny idea. And that it actually is. sustains itself. It, it does sustain itself. And I think that's all I really wanted from this film was I wanted some good laughs. I wanted to believe this married couple wanted to see some insights into what that experience is obviously different for every married couple but there are some common themes that do abound in a lot of marriages so i hope for that i got that what i really wanted was for it to deliver on the promise of its premise Mm -hmm. which is so good but could have been a little bit forced and maybe it comes off a little bit that way at times this notion though of these dissatisfied 30-somethings actually taking their fights, turning them into songs, and then the songs being pretty decent. I mean, you have to believe you have to believe they actually have some talent for it to be rewarding and enjoyable enough right. for them to keep doing it and for them to see some catharsis in it. And it works on that level. I yeah, feel like, and I for think sure. for me, I mean, you know, it's it's set in L.A. It, it's it's you know, they're kind of a, a little a little uh, example of kind of the the frustrated artist subset that is all over every inch of Los Angeles, based on the three years I lived there. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it just it just sort of makes sense. I think they found a way to to kind of kind of get those characters 
you know, into some sort of shape of characters mm-hmm. so that they can really just play into their own strengths. But yeah, Lister Jones is She's real, so good. She's I, I really, I like Pally, but I really do like Lister Jones. I think it's one of my favorite performances by an actress this year so far. And she's an actress who has a lot of credits going back to 2004, a lot of TV credits. She seems very familiar to me. And yet, seeing her and seeing her name, I couldn't place her. But she's been making features as a writer and as a producer since 2009 with her husband, including 2012's Lola Verses, which I remember hearing about, but I never saw. So she is completely brand new to me. Here she's not only the star and really the shining star, but she is writing, producing, and directing this one on her own. I think the last thing I want to say about the film, though, Michael, is that what really surprised me and what maybe is going to put it into that brick category for me is that it really fits surprisingly with the concept of this week's show. I didn't expect Band-Aid to be ultimately a movie about grief. Right. That was a pure coincidence. We don't want to give it all up because it it, it strategically withheld the the information around Yeah, I think within the first 15 minutes they they give you some clues. You know something's up, yeah. You can probably read into it, but as much as, as I said, the conceit gets maybe a little forced by the end, the film did succeed in making me really uncomfortable. And I say that as praise, actually, for this movie, because for a movie with this much self-awareness and kind of irony at its core, and we get a lot of this, what I perceive to be improvisational banter between Pally and Zoe Lister-Jones, it does all that, but it still has the conviction to go for really raw emotion. And some people, again, may have found it uncomfortable or that it just didn't quite pull it off. I'm still thinking about it a little bit, but I'm glad it went for it. Mm -hmm. And it surprised me in the way she went for it. Yeah, I agree. That's a good description. It's a a good surprise. People should seek it out. Band-Aid came out last weekend in limited release. It opens this weekend in Chicago and other cities. You can also see it available via cable on demand. We are going to put it in the list of Golden Brick candidates for this year. You coming tonight? I can't tonight. I got the Stark internship. What's up, guys? Mr. Stark, here's my report for tonight. I stopped the Grand Theft Bicycle. Hey, could you do me a favor? Hold on to that. Is this anybody's bike? Oh, I helped this old lady and she bought me a churro. So, that was nice. We get to pull questions with that clip from the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming. It is next up in the superhero queue. It comes out July 7th. I don't know if these poll results, Michael, are actually indicative of anything that maybe this movie isn't going to be the blockbuster that some are anticipating. There's no way that's the case. Maybe it's not going to be the blockbuster Wonder Woman turned out to be. I actually just think it's up against really good competition. Hmm. And film spotting listeners lean a slightly different way than maybe some other superhero fans. So we reviewed Wonder Woman last week on the show. And Michael, you were not here, but you liked it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So Michael's all in on Wonder Woman. And I don't know where he stands on the pronunciation of the name of the film's star, G-A-L-G-A-D-O-T. It's a good dot. It's a good dot. So, so you would think so, Michael. Now, if you heard our show last week, mm. you heard us say quite emphatically that we were confident that it's not Gal Gadot, that it is, in fact, Gal Gadot. And it didn't take long to hear from a listener, Stephen C. on Twitter. And we had some back and forth. And here's where we came out, Michael. So he says we're wrong. Mm. We're just not really wrong. We were going off of her interaction with Jimmy Kimmel on his show, Mm -hmm. where he says, hey, did I get your name right? How do you say it? She corrects him. Stephen does admit that it's a tough accent thing. She's nitpicking with Kimmel how the T 
cuts off at mm-hmm. the end of her name. Okay. And that creates more of a dut sound. Mm-hmm. But he contends because he speaks Hebrew and watching the clip that she really is saying Gadot. 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 But she cuts off that T so much that it comes off a little bit like Gadot. That's what Steven's saying. I'm just going to throw it out there. All right. Well, they're, okay. you know, they're, they're, in, they're in a related ballpark. They are know? very close. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I also want to plug the latest set of episodes for our friends at the Next Picture Show because how about this pairing, Michael? Wonder Woman with, of course, another World War One film, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. <laughs> I don't know how much of an influence. It's somewhat different that was. sense of uh, what, what happened out there in No Man's Land, but yes. uh, yeah. But yeah. there you go. Enough of a. Enough of a bit of connective tissue to justify two episodes out of the Next Picture Show, which you can find at nextpictureshow.net. There is a, I hope they devoted a, a long, a long segment to, to the moment in Paths of Glory when Kirk Douglas, who's really been holding it in, and, and you know, Douglas really loved to blow mm-hmm. it out, you know, but there's that one moment at the end where he has to confront Adolf Manjou as the, yep. as the, as the sinister, you know, man, uh, uh, military man in charge who sent these guys willingly in to die. And he just says, you filthy Degenerate, you know. <laughs> it's the one moment he kind of, ble- you know, yeah. it's like the, like the whole Kubrick framing, you know, the mm. meticulous control, and suddenly it's like Kirk Douglas is back. <laughs> but it's a great film. Yeah, his and Colonel you- Dax, one of my top Dax. military leaders, a few weeks back. Oh, fantastic! And 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 just for those, that's a really it's it, it's right at the very beginning of Kubrick's absolute golden period between The Killing and Two Thousand One and. Um, it's amazingly efficient storytelling too for Cooper. I mean, it's, it's barely ninety minutes long. And mm-hmm. It just really gives you a, a sense of oh, where where that career was going to go. Yeah. yeah, beautiful film. Well, enough of that. We'll get back to Spider Man here. Anticipation of our review. We do hope to discuss that on the show. We looked ahead at the remaining superhero movies on the 2017 calendar. Michael, only three to go. We wondered which one were listeners most looking forward to. The options we gave you were Spider Man: Homecoming, Thor. Ragnarok? Thor Ragnarok? You you pick your poison. Ragnarok? Okay, Michael, you have decided it's Ragnarok. Or Justice League, which comes out in November. Michael, will you share the results with our listeners? Uh, In number three, the number three slot, justifiably so, way in the back there, Justice League, Justice League with 15% of the vote. Yeah, they, mm. they just they just sent that back for massive reshoots, too. Yeah, I saw that. Based on the success of Wonder Woman, so... Maybe maybe we're just going to look really more at only Wonder Woman in Justice League because yeah. that film was actually good. So anyway, mm-hmm. number two, ready? Yeah, Spider Man Homecoming at twenty eight percent. Okay, yeah, not are bad. people are people really jazzed? Has, has Spider Man been away long enough? Are we ready for the new it's guy? Going to make a boatload of money. Uh, yeah, maybe. Okay, and then but the, the the clear winner here. Okay, Thor Ragnarok right here. Fifty-seven percent. I mean, that's like that's a mandate. So when this poll question was thrown out by our esteemed producer Sam Van Hogren, I predicted it would be forty-four, forty, sixteen. I thought that Thor mm. would win, but it would be much tighter. I'm a little bit surprised, but then again, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that film spotting listeners can't wait to see what Taika Waititi, of all filmmakers who you would never imagine would be making one of these big Marvel films, right. what he'll do with the material. Last directed to uh, What We Do the in the Shadows. The Hunt for the Wilder People and What We Do in the Shadows. I mean, you know, what did the people think, Adam? What did the people think? Yeah, there you think? go, 57%. We... And okay. let's hear from Brian Shea, who says, well, 
He's going a different direction, Michael. He says, I'm writing in response to your plaintive inquiry as to why anyone would vote for Justice League over the other two films in the current poll. As one of the few voters selecting Justice League, I'll give this defense. I understand how weary Josh is of the world is threatened trope of superhero movies, but I think this is because the trope has not yet been properly explored. Hmm. The world is seemingly always threatened by internal enemies in the Marvel world, but truly it's the villains that lurk beyond our earthly climbs that these heroes should be fighting. Oh, our earthly climbs? Earthly climbs, yes. Uh-huh. Very eloquent. Justice League represents a movie that takes on these cosmic forces in the form of Darkseid. Darkseid, like Thanos, see Thor the Dark World, do I have to, is an invader (laughs) who desires nothing more than galactic domination. He wants to bring all of humanity under his boot. This is a stark contrast for me to the standard Marvel villain. If Justice League can do Darkseid well, it would be for me a new and distinct take on this genre. Could Justice League be a disaster on par with Suicide Squad? Very possible. It's a high-risk, high-reward type of proposition, but the possibility of the high reward is enough to make me much more interested in seeing it than its other two most likely, more of the same, Marvel brethren. There you go. Brian defending Justice League. Okay, here's what Kate Fueo says. I'd follow Taika Waititi to the ends of the earth, or at least to Wellington, New Zealand, so Thor was a no-brainer regardless of who else was involved. But there's another element about Ragnarok that I'm surprised. Is it Ragnarok? It's up by House <laughs> That's of the Rock. you said. It's up by House of the Rock, I yeah. think, in uh, New Yeah, Madison. Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised that no one has mentioned this yet. The combination of Waititi, perhaps our best up-and-coming comic director, with up-and-coming comedian Chris Hemsworth. Regardless of your other opinions on the film, he's one of the funniest parts of Ghostbusters where he apparently improvised most of his material, and that's not even mentioning his comedic moments in earlier Marvel films, Waititi's Team Thor shorts, I'm wearing a pair right now, and even The Cabin in the Woods way back in the day. Yeah, Hemsworth, way back. Way back. Hemsworth clearly has a natural comic talent. I agree with that. And I have a feeling that under the right director, his performance in Ragnarok could help him build a bridge from the action franchises to something new and hopefully very funny. Okay, so most listeners out there, I think, agreeing with Kate, even if they maybe have slightly different reasoning. I don't know if they all properly appreciate the comedic genius that is Chris Hemsworth, but no, he's good. I'm with you. He's he, really good. He's good. He's, I mean, look, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of blocks of wood out there playing these types of True. roles. And he he is not that. Okay, well, we have to end with a sarcastic quip. Bruce McDonald, I'm almost as excited about this year's reboot of Spider-Man as I will be for next year's (laughs) reboot of (laughs) Spider-Man. Here's all we really want to know, though, Michael, about Thor Ragnarok. Yes. Are you going to plan a Goldblum and Thor costume for Halloween? Why are you constantly (laughs) linking me to Jeff Goldblum? We just can't help it. The best part about that is... Is that you said that in the most Jeff Goldblumiest of ways? Uh, you, whatever. <laughs> okay, let's move on. To I mean, you know, someday I'm going to someday I'm going to interview that guy, and I'm just going to oh, say, man. I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm just. Gonna, I hope so. Yeah, we can't wait. That brings us to this week's poll question and a giveaway. Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled opens June 30th. Mm. There is an advanced screening here in Chicago on Tuesday, June 27th, and if you go to filmspotting.net/events. That's where you can enter to win those free passes and admit to pass to see that movie, not just for free, but before it even comes out, Michael, Josh and guest host Angelica Bastien are going to review that movie. She's great. Here on the show. She's she great. is She's great. It was one of the best writers in town. Really good. And she joined Josh last summer. Our listeners may recall for a Suicide Squad discussion, and they did their top five female comic book characters done right. Now, Coppola was recently awarded Best Director at Cannes for The Beguiled. Michael, have you caught up with 
the Beguiled already. I have, I have, I have seen it. Okay. I, I, all I want to say really at this point, because I haven't written about it or thought enough before writing about it, is is that it's a very interesting and substantially, radically different version of the same story than the Don Siegel, mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood film from... Shocker. You know, yeah, yeah, but but in a in a very stimulating way. Well, on that show, they're going to offer up as well their top five Sofia Coppola scenes, so you can look forward to that show. But Michael, you're going to be one of the few people hearing this at this time, anyway, hmm. who will be in the position to consider the beguiled as an option in this poll question. Okay, and why not? Okay. Most of us haven't seen it, but. After much back and forth with Sam, well, mainly on Sam's own part, a lot of internal wrangling, I think he landed on a really good poll question this week. Sofia Coppola's best film is, and we're not going to give you all the options you'd expect because we kind of feel like Lost in Translation would run away with it. So mm-hmm. instead, mm-hmm. we've given it to you this way. Her best film is Lost in Translation or it's Other. One of the others. You can pick. It could be Virgin Suicides, yes. Marie Antoinette, Somewhere or Bling Ring. Or The Beguiled, or the if beguiled. you've seen it. So, okay. Michael, how are you voting in this poll? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, I get no notice for this? Nope. You know, I know so many people I know really adore Marie Antoinette, and I need to see that again. It's yeah, been, I do too. It's been almost, it's been a decade now or more. Yeah, 11 years. Ah. Uh, yeah, lost in translation. I, guess. I hate to say it, but I know, I know. What a bunch of wimps. I know. That's probably where I'm going to go. Now I need to see definitely lost in translation again. The Virgin Suicides, I'd watch again. And I'm with you on Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette's actually the only one of all those films that got a full review here on the show. Uh-huh. In 2006, we reviewed it. All the others have come up over the years, maybe on a top five list or two, or got a few minutes of discussion. But that was the only one that we really talked about in some detail. And I know that's how Sam would vote in this poll. So yeah. and he's it, a huge uh, fan of Marie I mean, Antoinette. I mean, Bling Ring, just for, I mean, there's that one spectacular shot that, that yes. damn well better come up in the top five, where you see the, where you see the robbery in progress mm-hmm. from across the canyon. Yep. And that was all that was actually cinematographer Harris Savidi's yeah. idea that you know she executed brilliantly. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. good, uh, good topic. I think so. Yeah. I think a good question. We hope it's a provocative one. We want to know what you think. Please do vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. All right, time for one more quick break. When we come back, our top five movies about grief. We'll see if I can just list Sophie's Choice five times in a row. <laughs> Stay with us. <laughs>
We also wanted to send a few quick thank yous out to our listeners for their donations this past week. Rob H., longtime listener from Sandy, Utah. Can't believe Rob is still listening, still donating to the show. I think we met back in 2007 or 8, one of my first trips to Sundance. We met up in Park City. He says he's still loving the show. Keep it going. Thank you, Rob. A Silver Club donation from Garrett Steiger. He's in North Hollywood, California. He says, it had been a while since my last donation, so I figured it was time to pay the dealer. Really enjoyed your tribute to Jonathan Demme and your Sacred Cow review of The Terminator. My wife and I are in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign for our first feature-length film. We're raising money to make a documentary about an organization called Odyssey of the Mind. Never heard of it? That's why we want to make the film. In short, the program is an international competition that evaluates Evaluate students' creativity, problem-solving skills, and teamwork. We have until June 23rd to reach our goal. Wondering if you guys could give us a plug on the show. Thanks for all the entertainment and insight. So, Garrett, there's your plug. We will include a link to your Kickstarter if anyone wants to help participate in that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Never heard of Odyssey of the Mind. I'm pretty sure at one point in my life, I was part of Odyssey of the Mind. I know I was. There was some program I was part of. I know we did that. Whether or not I was any good or my group was any good, I don't even remember what the project was, but I remember Odyssey of the Mind. Thank you, Garrett. And finally, a Buck a Show donation. And this is truly Buck a Show per show. Mike, one's a party, one's a crowd Weston. He's in Silicon Valley, California. He says he's an annual silver or gold club donor since 2006. Truly, by donating the way he is, he is in the gold club now. This is a Buck a Show 52 film spotting episodes, 26 SVU episodes, and 49 The Next Picture Show. So covering the whole film spotting family of podcasts, a buck a show, I think it came to $127, I think, my math. Never good, but I think that's what Mike sent over. Incredibly generous, as all of our listeners are, no matter how much they contribute. Thank you so much to everybody who contributed this week. You're a miracle, Ronnie. We're all miracles. You know why? Because as humans, every day we go about our business. And all that time, we know, we all know, that the things we love, the people we love, at any time, can all be taken away. We live knowing that and they keep going anyway. This is Film Spotting. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune is here to help me to hold my hand through this very somber top five. To process yeah, the top five. That's it. Top five movies about grief. And that was a scene from Little Children, Todd Field's film, Phyllis Somerville, the actress there playing May McGorvey. And she's the mother to Jackie Earl Haley's very disturbed sex offender, Ronnie. I came across that. You'll find out why I came across a scene from a Todd Field movie here in a moment. Mm -hmm. But I was revisiting an early interview. One of the earliest interviews here on the show was my conversation with Todd Field about the movie Little Children. And that conversation always stuck with me. And it seems to me, Michael, as good a segue into this topic as anything else in terms of summing up the human experience when it comes to grief. It's not only true as stated by May McGorvey there, but you could restate it. When the things we love, the people we love are taken away, we live knowing that and we keep going anyway. Mm -hmm. What other choice do we have? So we're going to look at the different ways various characters throughout a variety of different films try to go on anyway, despite right. that loss and that trauma. That's great. That's a well, 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 well phrased. I tell you, it's like the Samuel Beckett line: "I can't go on, I'll go on." 
Yeah, yeah, that really is it. Why don't you start us off, Michael, with your number five? And did you come at this any particular way, or did you really just try to think of the movies that dealt with the topic that you've always appreciated the most? Some of these were just sort of gut level, oh, I got to have that. But then, like all these top fives, you know, it's uh, infernally difficult to, to winnow it down. And there's just as many films that had a big impact on me that are going to get shoved off to the uh, honorable mention list. So, mm-hmm. You know, I apologize to all those films. In advance. <laughs> yes. um, you know, but I, I, I think there's got to be a variety of films about grief and dramatic or comic, I suppose, uh, if you can really find them, uh, sort of examinations of that. It, it's got to be as wide a variety as there are the grieving processes in real life. Otherwise, it's just monotonous, you know. There's a book out called uh, Mourning Films, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Not a, not a book I knew until I started doing some No, research. I haven't heard of it. It's called, and it's, uh, the subtitle is A Critical Study of Loss and Grieving in Cinema by Richard Armstrong, and in the book, he says, among other things, grief is not an experience with a set time limit. It, it is ebb and flow rather than a trajectory with a beginning, middle, and an end. And it does not lend itself readily to the neat and optimistic solutions of classic filmic storytelling. And I think, Adam, that's why so many movie portraits of grief or people sort of experiencing grief for a convenient amount of screen time before the triumphant all's well ending that doesn't ring true in the least. You know, that's why it's so hard to get it authentically right in some dramatic way on mm-hmm. screen, right? I mean, it's yeah. easy emotion to empathize with and a hard one to truly, I think, vividly dramatize. Yeah, so, well said. Uh, so I didn't do any for top five. It was too <laughs> difficult for me. I just, I just said no. Nah. The setup was perfect on its own, Michael. <laughs> okay, but, okay, first one. Yes. Is my most frivolous. Okay, The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, James Whale, okay. I, I, you know, I, I really love that film for a lot of reasons. It's one of the few sequels better than the original uh, in screen history. And there's something truly tragic and kind of grief-stricken about what that monster, played by Boris Karloff, endures in this in this cockamamie story that Whale and, and a series of screenwriters came up with for Bride of Frankenstein. He 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 just goes through a series of 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 these bruising, punishing interactions with the human race that's constantly trying to kill him, right? And it's in lesser hands this would be just an awful kind of you know series of pathos that really kind of low grade, right? But this there's something really Kind of amazing when you get to the scenes where he he finally has a brief uh, interaction with the woman of his dreams, the uh, the bride of Frankenstein, played by Elsa Lancaster, and and that goes to hell instantly. And so that's just kind of the last straw for this guy. And to me, I, you know, this is the only one like this in my top five, but it's the one. You know, serial comic uh, example of of this grieving process. I think that um, you know, and this one came to me just kind of like you know. I think I think I'm going to throw that in because mm-hmm. it, it's not a film I've seen all that recently, but it's a film that's always stuck with me, and I don't go back to it very very often or easily because it is a painful movie to watch in a funny huh. way, and yet it's essentially a high comedy, right? In in the guise of a horror film, it is a crazy film, and it wasn't even in the pre-code area. It was it was a, it was a year or two after that, 1935. Anyway, that's my number five. You make man like me? No. Woman. Friend for you. Woman. Friend. 
Yes, I want friends like me. Well, there's a little bit of comedy on my list, a little bit, but I don't think anything quite as frivolous as that pick, Michael. Oh, frivolous. I admire it. Oh, well, frivolous. that was your word. No, I did not say that. Didn't you? Well, I did. <laughs> Frivolity? As I, as I listen to the tape again. Uh-huh. Yes, I, I can't tell. You're busted. <laughs> well, speaking of not frivolous, The Tree of Life is a movie that's in the film spotting pantheon, mm-hmm. and it is a movie that deals with grief, that Terrence Malick film, not eligible because we did just put it in the Pantheon last week, in fact. A movie that was also anointed quite recently, The World of Opu, Satyajit Ray, that great film from the Opu trilogy, not eligible. I'm sure there may be a few others that are in our Pantheon, but those are the two that really stood out. The one thing I'll say instead of to my list, and this came up a little bit during our review of It Comes at Night, the movie that inspired this topic, there really are no easy lessons to take away, I think, from grief or the grieving process, but... For this list, I did focus on five movies that revealed to me a number of truths about grief. Hmm. I'll just put it that way. And my number five is a Todd Field film. It is In the Bedroom Mm -hmm. from 2001. This is the film that is set in Maine. Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek are a husband and wife. They have a son played by Nick Stahl, who's a recent college graduate, seems to have his whole life in front of him. And he gets into a relationship with an older woman played by Marissa Tomei. And she has an ex-husband, a violent ex-husband, who kills the son in a confrontation. And as if that wouldn't be hard enough to deal with as the parents losing your son, the ex-husband walks on bail. And then basically, we come to find out, isn't really going to receive much punishment at all for Mm -hmm. his crime. So in terms of truths that this movie made me think about, even with someone to blame, as they have here, someone very directly responsible for their loss. There's still a compulsion to question what you or others could have done or should have done to prevent the loss, which of course can lead to more blame. And the truth that people do grieve as individuals in their own unique way, which can lead to serious fractures in a couple or a group. And we see that in Ruth and Matt. Ruth was always against this relationship. Mm. Matt was always okay with it. Ruth is definitely more expressive and willing to talk about her feelings. Matt just shuts down completely, and that leads to an eruption in the kitchen. Are you, are you saying that, that I'm the one responsible? Is that it? Well, uh, well, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You got it backwards. I know what you think, that uh, that I was too lenient, that I let him get away with... Everything! Everything! Yes, 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 and why? Why did he never come to you? He wouldn't listen to me, Matt. No, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't trust listen me. to you. He sure wouldn't that. listen to you because you never listened to him. No, you did. You were winking at him the whole time. You encouraged him. You wanted what he had. Her. Oh, my God, you got to be kidding. You it. You wanted it, and you couldn't get it. That's why you didn't stop him, so you could get your kicks or your son. I love both performances in this film, especially SpaceX, and that everything moment always gets me because in its own way, it's this violent act when she shatters that dish, and it just seems to me not just reflective of her pain in that moment, but a culmination of all of her anger and frustration finally coming out. And I think that we probably see another truth by the end of this film that I won't get into, but there's a need on the parents' part to seek closure, 
no matter how misguided or false that closure might right, be, right. there's a compulsion that, at least for some, is something they can't deny. But there's a lot of truths that I think are captured in this Todd Field movie, and it's really a good one in the background. That, you know, he's such an interesting director. I mean, that film and Little Children, which we heard from mm-hmm. earlier, I mean, they're really both, I mean, you know, a couple of problems here and there, and Little Children, I'm not quite sure about the ending, but it's... Uh, uh, you know, not a flashy technician, no. but, but really, really, uh, he's so good with actors. And yeah, no, you really get, and Wilkinson, Spacek, they're all good. Everybody's yep. good. Yeah. My number four is Truly Madly Deeply, uh, Anthony Minghella, who wrote and directed uh, the film. It's um, Juliet Stevenson plays Nina, the interpreter, who uh, has just lost her uh, boyfriend, uh, Jamie, who was a cellist. He's played by Alan Rickman, and he's all over the movie. He comes back as a ghost, uh, we think, or maybe it's just a, maybe a, simply her subconscious sort of bringing this guy to life. The, the screenplay kind of plays it down the middle on that front, but you know they really kind of get to extend their relationship into this bizarre metaphysical afterlife where he's just basically hanging around the apartment, playing with the heat up to you know apparently the dead like it nice and hot in the house, so he turns the heat way up, um, and he invites some ghost friends back to the house just to kind of hang out. But then she meets a fellow human, an actual living human, Mark, a psychologist, and she can't really get involved with him fully emotionally until she learns to say goodbye to the ghost who's hanging around. Now, this sounds like pure comedy, right? This sounds like Blythe Spirit, Noel Coward or something like that. Um, But it's a very bittersweet picture. And it's... It's 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 not a film I've seen in a while, but it's a film that really did come to mind pretty quickly for huh. this list because I think it, it, Mangella is a dramatist enough and Stevenson's actress enough, God knows, where they play the the grieving she's going through for of just just purely missing the man in her life so mm-hmm. badly that and, and they let those scenes play. You know, you really you don't kind of zip through them to get to the more audience-friendly stuff about, you know, the ghost coming back and hanging out. Um, but by the time by the time the half, first half hour, 40 minutes goes by and you've really kind of spent some time with her grieving right in it, uh, you're ready for something else. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, a, it's a really crafty picture. And, of course, it's sad, too, to, to see now that Alan Rickman is gone and to, to realize how, uh, how wonderful he was and all kinds of stuff. And this is one of his quietest shrewdest performances. Tell me about the first night we spent together. Why? Seriously? You want me to? What did we do? We talked. What else? Well, talking was the major component. You played that piano. Then I played. Then we both played something. Duet, something, can't remember. And then you danced for about three hours until I fell asleep. But you were fantastic. <laughs> and then we had some cornflakes. And when we kissed, which was at about 11 o'clock the following morning, we were trembling so much we couldn't take off our clothes. I can always count on you to come up with at least one choice that I need to see. And oh, truly, oh, see Madly Deeply has yeah, been yeah. on the list for a long time. Good. It's been a real regret. <laughs> My number four is a movie that would have been perfectly set up by your quote 
at the start of your list, the quote from the Richard Armstrong book about the ebb and flow of time mm. and the way that relates to grief, because this is a film very much known for its nonlinear structure, specifically within one of the best sex scenes in cinema history. The movie is Don't Look Now oh, okay. from Nicholas Rogue, 1973, yeah. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, a similar pick in some ways to In the Bedroom in that the grief is over the loss of a child, though here it's a much younger child, and it's about the toll it takes on a marriage, though this film certainly much more about the couple's psyches and how fragile they are, and it's obviously very much more of a horror thriller than In the Bedroom ever would be, but it's basically about this couple who are on their British estate. The movie opens with their daughter. I don't know how old she is, maybe eight to ten years old, maybe a little bit younger. Mm. She's wearing a red coat that comes up very prominently in the movie, and she chases a ball into the water and drowns. Both parents are home. You can't, in this case, blame anyone Mm. for this the way the parents and in the bedroom could. They can't even really blame each other, and I think that gets to the, the truths of this film. I mentioned closure within the bedroom. The truth with this film, one of the truths that I think the rogue film really gets at is that in spite of the absence of a responsible party or maybe because of the absence of a responsible party, there is this deep need to find some explanation, some larger meaning behind this loss becomes crucial to this family. And I think so many families dealing with a loss like this, they cling to anything. The Mm -hmm. fact that their daughter is not gone, they are faced with two women who are sisters, one of them blind, who says, I've talked to her. She's speaking to me. And when the Julie Christie character hears this news, it sends her to the hospital, first of all. But when she comes out, we actually get that sex scene. We get this first real moment of of joy between them that they've had since probably their daughter was lost. She now looks at life slightly differently because she believes somehow that her daughter's still out there or that she can communicate with and, her in some way. And in that scene, which is pretty famous, mm-hmm. uh, and it's 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 made more complicated by all these yes. flashbacks and kind of like— And flash-forwards, yeah. Flash-forwards, and, you know, it's, and it's, it plays around a lot with, with just, you know, psychological states in terms of editing, editing yes. uh, st- strategies. And it's really—it's it, still— yeah, it does it look a little 1973? Sure, sure. But, I mean, very very few films made in 73 don't. Yeah, no, I agree. And the husband, of course, clings to this image of the childlike figure in the red coat that he keeps seeing around the corner. And just this idea, what really stuck with me, Michael, was this notion of ascribing truth and meaning, even when there are obvious danger signs, as there are very much in this film. The pain is just so great that they cling to it because if they can latch on to some other layer of meaning. Well, that means that maybe there is some other layer of existence and maybe this current suffering is temporary. Hmm. And that's what they're, that's what they're really longing for. Right. Right. Yeah. Good pick. Yeah. Good. My number three is a film that, uh, I don't know if you guys have, you and Josh have talked about this on the film, uh, because it's, it's right up both your alleys, but Secret Sunshine. Oh Yeah. Yeah, you know, we reviewed it actually as part of one of our marathons. This is uh, You're right, so appropriate. Yeah, really good. Lee Cheng Dong's 2006 film. He's a South Korean filmmaker. I think it was released in uh, 2007. And very briefly, it's about a young woman and her only child who moved to the small town where her late husband grew up. She's decided to relocate there just to kind of, you know, in some in some intangible way, keep in touch with her uh, her late husband's memory. She finds that the town is a little bit of a cold shoulder everywhere she goes. It's uh, a largely Christian community, but they're not really acting in any kind of overt Christian <laughs> charity ways at all. It's a it's a tough relocation. Then, 
you get this miserable tragedy when her only son is abducted. And I don't even want to, you know, you don't mm-hmm. give, the second half of the film goes its own way, but uh, it's about, about a woman suffering two enormous losses, what, what two very different kind of phases of grief look like. And then you get this crazy last hour of the yes. film where it just becomes a spiritual inquiry and, and, and it's, it's got a very, very kind of distinct and peculiar tone where you don't even really know what the, what the next second of this woman's life is going to be. It, it's it's, re, it's really good. Not a film people know as widely as, as they should. And um, I mean, really right along with one of my favorite films of the last 10, 20 years, Poetry from right. South Korea. This is, a, this is a really special film, Secret Sunshine. And, yeah. and, it, and it's, it's deeply invested in the grief and what, what it can do to one person. Yeah, Secret Sunshine was one of our favorite films from our Korean auteurs marathon. Beautiful. A few years back. And I seem to recall my setup question for Josh was something along the lines of, does the movie justify having to slog through all that misery? And the answer is yes. It, it to does. me, it didn't feel that way. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I haven't seen it for a while, but it, it, it feels, there's something, there's something really, uh, really kind of buoyant about the way it's told. And especially the acting is just, it's so size, the size of it is really, mm-hmm. really electrifying. My number three movie about grief is Inside Out. Inside Out, the, yeah. the Pixar film. The Pixar film. Yes. Even though there isn't a direct loss in the way that we're speaking in terms of a son or daughter dying, perhaps, but it's about a young girl named Riley. I think she's 11, and we meet her, and we meet the characters inside her head, her emotions, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. The family, Riley's family, picks up and moves from their idyllic home in Minnesota to San Francisco, and basically everything that could be bad turns out to be bad, at least for Riley. And she's grieving the loss yeah, of her old life. she's grieving the loss of her old life. That's yep. it. And That's enough. there are two real fundamental truths at work here in this film and one I know for sure or I believe in confidently and one I want to believe is true even if I haven't experienced it yet myself and listeners may recall I've talked about both of these truths previously on the show our top five films of 2015 so far Inside Out was on that list I still can't believe it didn't make my top 10 that year and actually it came up in passing during our review I think January 2016 of the movie 45 years another really oh, good yeah, film. film and a film that deals with loss in its own way as well. But for me, Michael, what Inside Out shows that I really do think is right on is that grief is something, it sounds obvious to say we try to avoid grief, but I think what Inside Out really states clearly is that we will actively work to suppress grief as hard as we possibly can. It's not just that we don't want to deal with it. We don't even want to accept really the slightest expression of it because it's almost as if we fear that if we let that one little little bit out, it's going to cause this avalanche that we can't overcome. So there's that. But then what is really startling about the film is the way a key plot decision late in the movie rests on sadness kind of coming to the rescue. And it's when Riley has decided she's so fed up she's going to get on a bus and go back to Minnesota. Her parents don't know where she is. Obviously, this could go very badly. And it's because sadness kicks in at that point that she's so overcome with emotion that she decides to go back home to her family. And we do get this wonderful exchange with her and her parents where she finally articulates the loss that she's feeling. (laughs) I, I know you don't want me to, but... 
Mm. I miss Minnesota. You need me to be happy. Things then finally start to look up for Riley because it's not just that Joy has finally relegated some of her power to sadness in this case, but they literally join together. The movie says that you really can't have joy without sadness, well, and this without is, accepting. And the whole visual idea of the you know the ball, the the, the kind of the emotion balls rolling down yes. and then being delivered, and that this is kind of the one brilliant, the most inspired idea I think of the entire picture is that this is the first profoundly mixed emotion of her life. Now that's, a, you know, it's kind of a simplification of, you know, anybody's emotional mm-hmm. makeup, but it, it's just a great idea. Yes. And it's perfect for the moment. And yeah, you know, my, my wife hates that film. Really? Yeah. And we, Heidi. And I, yeah. I, and I love her more than, you know. <laughs> she's great. I mean, I, she's fantastic, but she really has interesting objections to that film. Okay. That's another show. Yeah, it is. And I, I would love to hear that top explanation five, Top five objections by one spouse. <laughs> Top to, five, top five movies Heidi is wrong about. <laughs> no. Don't phrase it wrong, to her. Don't frame it to her like that, <laughs> Michael. But yeah, Inside Out, definitely the way it asks us to embrace grief and the way it links sadness and joy was remarkable for me. Actually, we had a listener last week who sent us a voicemail, JD from In Session Film, that podcast where that combination, the fact that that movie presents you with that and really provokes that idea was his number one religious experience at the movies. Wow. As we defined religious experience, or at least as he defined religious wow. experience. So I'm with you. It's something that has always stuck with me about that film and always will. Yeah. Good. That's great. Good pick. Number my, two. My number two is kind of on the nose. It's maybe a little obvious, but it, I and I love it more than just about anybody I know. It's Tom Ford's film, A Single Man with Colin Firth. And this is an adaptation of Christopher Isherwood's 1964 novel, set in Santa Monica in 62, and the character that Colin Firth plays, George Falconer, uh, early on, he uh, learns of his longtime boyfriend's death in a car accident, right near the beginning of the picture. He receives this news by telephone, and the camera stays on Firth a very long time as, he, as, as he's hardly saying anything. I'm afraid I'm calling this some bad news. Huh? There has been a car accident. Accident? There's been a lot of snow here lately, and the roads have been icy. On his way into town, Jim lost control of his car. It was instantaneous, apparently. Huh. It happened late yesterday, but his parents didn't want to call you. I see. In fact, they don't know that I'm calling you now, but I thought that you should know. Thank you. I know this must be quite a shock. It was for all of us. Yes, indeed. In one shot, it is just Colin for his finest minute of ever. I mean, it's it's just a beautiful piece of screen acting, and you see the beginning of grief. That's what you see. It's like the seed, the origin point, yeah. and and. You know, when you see it done that delicately, but that 
truly and and powerfully it's just it's just you know that it makes so many other screen depictions of grief look like three dollar bills just You're phony right. you know and and artificial and and then from there we see you know the film shows us flashbacks to a much earlier time when uh, Firth and the uh, character played by Matthew Good are, you know, together. Um, and then in the present day, you know, he's going through all sorts of emotions with the grieving process. He's considering suicide. And then his best friend and one-time lover, played by Julianne Moore, kind of enters the picture. And then it's really more of a two-hander from that point. But a yeah. uh, good, really good film. That, But just on that narrow uh, subject of grief and how it can... Um, Especially, it's it's really astute about how how a, a closeted, semi-closeted man at that place and time in American history would deal with it, or plausibly deal, with it, and then hopefully learn how to deal with it better. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a little better anyway. It's just it's just startling, and and where it goes is completely unexpected. And I, I don't know. It's a character piece. It's not really overtly dramatic, but Firth is fantastic. Yeah, he really is. It's a great choice. One I considered. For my number two, we're going to go up a whole year from 2015 to 2016. You might recall, Michael, that when we did our end-of-the-year roundtable last year, our top 10 films of 2016, I suggested it was the year of trauma. It was the year about movies dealing with this type of pain and then figuring out how to move forward from it. Some of the movies were Arrival, Tower, The Witness. There were many others. And one of those was Manchester by the Sea from oh, Kenneth Lonergan. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, Michael, there's some acting here on display by Casey Affleck as Lee that probably matches or at least comes close to matching the authenticity that you're speaking of with Colin Firth mm, in yeah, A Single Man. Very different characters, but very different. E- equally well realized. Yeah. yeah. And I think about, of course, Inside Out as I was processing these two films and putting them on my list. You have someone like Riley in Inside Out who is dealing with grief, as we touched on. She's experiencing a loss of her former life, and she figures out how to embrace her pain. That helps her. But she's young. She has her parents. She has these people who are close to her who really help her. She's dealing with pain that is common. A lot of kids move. A lot of kids experience that type of loss. I would say that Lee, in addition to not having his whole life ahead of him like Riley does and having very little in the way of a support system, is dealing with a particularly awful kind of pain. Mm. And I'm not going to spoil it. If somehow you haven't seen Manchester by the Sea yet, there is a very slow reveal as we get the full scope of exactly what he's dealing with. We know that he doesn't have a family anymore. That's very clear from the beginning of the film. He has lost his children. Many do, like others on this list. But the issue of blame, let's say, and the particular circumstances make it a lot more complicated. And I say all of that to set up The truth, I think the truth that this movie at least suggests, whether we all want to buy it or not, comes in that moment, one line that he repeats when talking to Lucas Hedges, who plays his nephew Hmm. in the film, who just can't understand why he's not willing to basically move back to Manchester and try to make a go of it as opposed to existing in this solitary type of life that he seems to have accepted. What is the line? And the line is, I can't beat it. I can't beat it, that's right, yeah. Why can't you stay? Come on, Patty. I can't beat it. I can't beat it. I'm sorry. Maybe, Michael, some grief can't be overcome. Maybe some grief 
can't be beat. And the only way to move on in any way, however you want to define moving on, is to simply acknowledge that you're incapable of beating it. It's depressing. It's pessimistic, I suppose. But it does feel incredibly honest to me, which isn't what most movies who deal with this subject matter are. Uh, right. And the miracle of that film, Adam, and, and you know, I don't want to be cynical about it because I think it's superb, but it, it, it would not have made $50 million in America if it hadn't found a way, if Lonergan, Kenneth Lonergan hadn't found a way to give you a plausible amount of sunlight in that guy's life by the end. A tiny bit. A tiny bit. The relationship with the nephew is there. It's not yeah. together together, but it's there. And you see it right in the last scene mm-hmm. and that and the acting in those and, and of course the whole the nephew's storyline and more conventional kind of coming of age uh teenage angst storyline. Um, uh, and he's lost his father too. So there's, That's this, right. this is a kind of a dual portrait in grief, but, For sure. but, but there is a lot of, of unexpected wit and kind of delight in the way they work together. And no, it's, you're right. it's, it's great. That's, it's, it's, that's to me the, the miracle of that film is that, that Lonergan's sense of humor somehow, uh, didn't, didn't seem out of place in this story. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. You're number one. Uh, and to your point, Joyce Carol Oates said something I thought was fantastic about, and where you're just talking about if it's if the load is simply too much, she said when she was writing her memoir, I'm writing this memoir to see what can be made of the phenomenon of grief in the most exactingly minute of ways. I'm no longer convinced that there is any inherent value in it, or if there is, if wisdom springs from the experience of terrible loss, it's a wisdom one might do without. Hmm. And that's the movies lie about that all the time. Right. Right. You know, yeah. And here's a movie that doesn't lie about it, I think, and yet it's just a Hitchcock thriller. You know, and the last time I saw Vertigo, and when I say just a Hitchcock thriller, I mean, oh well, it's commercial, I love this you know, mainline. The last time I saw Vertigo, it had been a few years, like four or five years. And the my the the overwhelming impression I got was just how crushingly focused it is on one soul, poor souls, you know, three cycles of horrible, horrible. Talk about a guy who's stuck, grief. That's and, it, and, you're and, right. You know, I don't want to give, I don't want to hack through the plot of Vertigo again for people, but, you know, James Stewart plays Scotty Ferguson, who in the first minute of the picture loses his partner on the police force you know, in a in a sort of dizzying fall from a, from a gutter on a rooftop, could have saved him if he hadn't been stricken with, you know, at least this movie's visual idea of vertigo, which is it leads to a you know this long long recovery, and then of course this obsession with this woman played by uh, um, Kim Novak, who he's hired to trail. Anyway, you know, it's a famous film. It's an infamous film in that so many people don't believe it belongs on the number one slot of that sight and sound poll. Um, but I, I tell you, if you just sort of get rid of the melodrama and the mystery machinery of it all, which is a little rickety in yeah. some ways and, and kind of sure. bald, baldly preposterous, that film is up to many more things than that. And the deeper it goes into that guy's mental state and the deeper it goes into Stewart's performance that I, I don't know I, I could barely walk out of that last screening you know? yeah. but, and it's not perfect there's something a little I've, it's always bugged me Adam and it always will there's a there's a there's a beat or two missing in that last minute on the You're rooftop right. where it's like I think it's undeniable it, it's so rushed 
and it's just so frantic, and mm-hmm. and it just needs fifteen more seconds somewhere. Yes, of it like, does. Of to, so that it really sinks in horribly. Yeah, film was a, film was not a commercial success. No kidding, you know. I mean, this film is uncompromisingly bleak in what it does to this character, but uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, it's such a good pick. It's such a good film. It's in the film spotting pantheon. So I couldn't have chosen it, Michael. You, of course, are not bound by such. I don't Such even believe I laugh, I laugh at I the Pantheon. <laughs> you should. Yeah. But Vertigo is such a good choice. I did just see it a year ago. I think it was in 70 millimeter at the Music Box here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And you're right. That movie, ultimately at its core, all I really think about when I think about Vertigo is Scotty's sadness. Yeah. It's a sad, sad movie. Do you know about the, do you know about the ending they had to shoot, the epilogue, just to appease the censors? I've heard about it. So in the end, again, I, tricky with spoilers here, but in the cut we know and that exists, the character who's kind of the string puller and the the antagonist in this essentially gets away scot-free, right? No, no punishment, no retribution. And here in the waning years of the production code enforcement where you should not, you could not let a movie get away, a character get away like that, Hitchcock reluctantly... For some markets overseas, uh, and and potentially to save save himself from censor trouble here in the states, filmed this epilogue where James Stewart and Barbara Bel Geddes are together again. So he's he's just suffered his third crushing grief stricken loss. Okay, and then there's an epilogue. They're back in the apartment in San Francisco. That sounds preposterous, right? Yes. The way Hitchcock films it, it's really good. Is it? You should see it on YouTube. It's there's no di- I don't think there's there's a little bit of information on the radio. That they're listening to. Okay, it's a long shot in the apartment. You're very. They're still isolated. They're not even together in the apartment. It's like they're still and forever alone and okay. apart. You hear what you need to hear about the character who's you know the key thing of the plot, mm-hmm. and then and and then it's a fade out. There's nothing. There's no wow. close up. There's no. There's no kind of like oh okay he's going to get better. So actually Hitchcock found a way to kind of film this ending that was ultimately never used anywhere. To kind of, but still keep it, keep that chill and that grief hanging in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, a real artist. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to seek it out. I will put the link to it in the notes for the show at filmspotting.net. That's how, that's how, that's how uh, painstaking and, and really and helpful you are. We're here to provide a service yes. to our listeners, Michael. My number one is Christoph Kislovsky's Three Colors. Blue. Blue. Oh, great pick. 1993. I mean, can I just say Juliette Binoche and make make the show a lot shorter? I probably could, right? She can do grief. She she can do anything, but she can definitely do grief. And maybe this is a little bit of a counter to Manchester by the Sea's Lee. Julie, the character she plays, she survives a car accident that claims her husband and daughter and basically decides to drop out of life. And this is where the three colors come in. He made the trilogy blue, white, and red. These three themes of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. And this idea actually is about liberty. She's free in a way. We think of freedom as this purely wonderful thing. But in her case, she only gets this freedom. She acquires it through this terrible Mm. loss. And she says, basically, I'm going to separate myself from society. I'm not going to be tethered by these family responsibilities anymore. And she tries to disconnect completely. She tries to do what Lee mostly succeeds in doing in Manchester by the Sea, except for that relationship with the nephew that does does tether him a little bit. But what we find in this film is that no matter how hard she tries, she basically can't avoid interaction. Now, she's in Paris, so it doesn't hurt that even when she takes an apartment and tries to keep herself away from everyone, she still 
can't avoid interaction. She is connecting with people. And her past converges with her present, which paves a way somehow to a future, the movie suggests, by the end of it. And maybe the truth of this film, among many others, is in the way it's a rebuke of that stance. I suggested the I can't beat it stance. It's an opposing viewpoint anyway. Maybe some people are equipped to beat it. And Lee isn't, but maybe Julie the Binoche character here is because <laughs> she's not she's not trying or she's not being forced to the way Lee is in that movie. He's being forced to confront all of these right. demons in a way that he would rather not. And this is just more organic. It's life. It it just creeps in on her until she can't deny it any longer. So there's that. There's the fact that I just think I mean the movie is called Blue. It's just bathed in this gorgeous light that suggests this kind of reckoning with loss. Right. And For me, it was the first title that came to mind. But I also want to share a quick note from a listener, Laura. She wrote in back in March 2011 when we talked about this movie as part of our Kislovsky trilogy. This is is another great truth this movie captures, and it's just in a single shot. I just wanted to tell you that movie has one of the best screenshots of grief that I've ever seen. It's a movie moment I remember forever. It's when Juliette Binoche is sitting in a coffee shop, and she puts a sugar cube in her espresso. The hot coffee soaks up the cube dissolving as it advances. In my work, I work with a lot of people who are grieving. I can't tell you how many times I have thought of this scene as I see grief consume patients or mm, families. Mm, That's mm, it. Yeah. Just in that simple, visual image. Simple, apt metaphor, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are our top five movies about grief. Michael, you suggested that there might be a plethora of honorable mentions on this topic. The movies have dealt with grief quite a bit. Some more authentically than others, as we've touched on. What are some of the other films that you considered? Adam Goins, The Sweet Hereafter. One of my favorites. Really, you know, not an easy picture at all. But The book's even better, and I love the movie. Right. Is that set in Texas? No, I don't think it's so. Not, I thought it was set in the U.S., though. I always thought the settings matched, but it's been a long time. Sure. I, know, I, know, I know the book was based loosely on a Texas incident, okay. but I think it was relocated. Russell but then, Banks. And then Goins up to Canada. But uh, That's a really... Uh, a really devastating kind of collage portrait of, of how grief can infect an entire town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually, in the Pixar realm, I'd probably go up because the more, totally. you know, the more I see that one, uh, you know, that stunning uh, montage at the beginning where you see the whole entire marriage kind of go through its paces and you see, you know, Carl, the balloon salesman's entire story after that is really just kind yeah. of a response to grief. That's right. Ozu's Tokyo story, even yes. though the, the grief is more oblique there because it's not really hit head on in any way. But uh, it, that that just remains, that, that film was almost too good for a facile top five list about films. Because uh-huh. <laughs> that film is about so many things, you name it, it's on the top five. That's true. Um and and really, the only other thing I'd like to talk argue with you about is Sophie's Choice. Okay, here's my issue with Sophie's Choice as 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 a grief movie or as, as a great a, movie as a grief film and a great film. Oh, I think, I think no, no question about the grief. Good lord, you're faced with the <laughs> okay. world's most horrendous, heartless, inhuman decision yeah. of your life. You have to make which child am I going to send into the ovens hmm. at the concentration camp. That is one kind of horrible, horrible tragedy. It is not really, I don't know if it's the stuff of a great dramatic fiction about this particular subject. That's my feeling about it. Okay. Have you You? read that book? Yes. Okay. So for me, that's the great American novel. Mm. It doesn't get better than Styron Sophie's Choice. Okay. So 
I'm a little bit biased. That's all right. I mean, I I, I, I have issues with the Pakula film, but yeah. there are things about it I absolutely adore. I think I'm biased by how much I love the book. Mm-hmm. That any version of it, honestly, on screen, I mean, it would have had to have been a complete failure for me to to not appreciate the material on some yeah. level. And I haven't seen it for a long time. Yeah, I haven't either. Or, or read it. I mean, I haven't read or seen it since '82 or so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the films you did not mention. We had a listener who sent us a great voicemail. Why don't we hear it now? Hey, Adam and Michael. Billy Ray Bruton here from AL and LA, respectively. For me, there really isn't any debate as to the greatest film about grief. It happens to be my all-time favorite film, Robert Redford's 1980 classic, Ordinary People. This film has been unfairly maligned for years for defeating Raging Bull at the Oscars for Best Picture, when it's really the simplest and most authentic portrait of grief ever depicted on film. What makes it so remarkable is how it shows us the various forms that grief takes in its various characters. You've got the mother, played with an icy brilliance by the late Mary Tyler Moore, who bottles it all up inside and doesn't want to pretend like it even happened. You've got the father, played by Donald Sutherland, who wants to absorb it, live with it, and move on with his life. And you've got the son, played by Timothy Hutton, so racked with guilt because he believes he's responsible. Every character is on his or her own journey through the film, and Redford, in just his very first outing as director, has the wisdom and patience to be still and sensitive and just let it all unfold. When I think of grief, I think of how it changes people, some for the better and some for the worse. And Ordinary People is that change, and that's why it's the best movie about grief, the best movie I've ever seen, and a film that more people need to discover. I've yet to show it to anyone who wasn't profoundly moved. So I hope you guys have a great show, and keep up the good work. Another Donald Sutherland pick. Great choice, Robert Redford's Ordinary People, Billy Ray, one of his all-time favorite movies. There was a time where I probably had it in my top ten. I loved it that much back when I was in college. For some reason, that movie just was one I latched onto. It's surefire, the moment, whatever one thinks of the film, that moment when Timothy Hutton finally breaks down uh, in the office of Judd Hirsch's psychiatry. The goodwill hunting, basically, takes. Right, exactly. And, and, uh, you know, with the right actors— it's just, it's just your heart's right there. Well, you know? the Mary Tyler Moore scene with Donald Sutherland, when they're having that conversation, I think in the garage, where Donald Sutherland confronts her about a moment at their son's funeral. That's the one for me that slays it's, me. Yeah, every it's time. great. I, I have to see the film again. I found, I found that as written and a little bit as acted. I think that portrait of that icy, yeah, waspy, fearsome matriarch is a little bit. Off. Yeah. A little much. Yeah, maybe it is, but that's a one little of the things, movie. A little I, movie-ish. It is, but when I think about that film, I try to really put myself in her shoes. Yeah, I, and I, I, do I would try never to see do it that. from her no, perspective. It's not, not my. That's, <laughs> I don't even understand the, what you're okay, saying. Fair enough. <laughs> well, we have mentioned some of my honorable mentions already. All throughout the very obvious, it seems to come up just about every week here on the show. But Tarkovsky's Solaris, and I'm mm. a big fan of the Soderbergh version as well. All about my mother from Almodovar, Rabbit Hole, the John Cameron Mitchell film, The Fisher King. Another Lonergan movie, Margaret, I think oh, you could make Margaret, the case, really good belongs pick. in here. Really and then pick. a recent one that I almost shoehorned into my list, even though I don't love it as much by any means as some of these other films, because it's like It Comes at Night in that it's a horror movie, as Trey Schultz put it, that has other things on its mind. Uh-huh. The Babadook. The Babadook, a good. The good. Babadook. Yes, that that yes. ultimately is all about grief. Yeah, that's a really, a family. Uh, really good film. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is. So those are our top five movies about grief. And we want to hear your picks. Please send any comments you have about the show 
to feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at filmspotting.net is where you can find over 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, we do hope you'll vote in the current film spotting poll. Sofia Coppola's best film, it's either Lost in Translation or it's Other. And if you haven't already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. Find both in Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Michael, if you've seen any of these, please comment 47 meters down. I saw this trailer before I saw it comes at night this past weekend. Two sisters, one of them's Mandy Moore, I believe, vacationing in Mexico. They're trapped in a shark cage at the bottom of the ocean with less than an hour of oxygen left and great white sharks circling nearby. I had to actually avert my eyes the second they went in the cage and got lowered into the water. I couldn't finish watching this trailer. I don't really know what's next. We had the Blake Lively yes, shark movie shallows. where she's basically stuck in, you know, on one beach, and now we're in a cage. Yes. The next shark movie is just going to be people in stuck in, like, the bottom third of a cage. Maybe. It'll, that's, how, that's how small it's going to be. <laughs> All Eyes on Me. I also saw this trailer, the Tupac Shakur biopic, and Cars 3. Mm. No? Mm. Oh, man, I'm disappointed because I believe our our friend and colleague, Matt Singer, posted something about having a very emotional reaction to Cars 3. Well... He's a wet personality. Yes, he you is. Know, he's, a, he's, he's an emotional man. <laughs> okay, and, so, and I admire that. So you're not, no. you're not as in on no. Cars 3. Not, what no. about Rough Night? Bachelorette party goes bad when a male stripper dies. Scarlett Johansson, Kate McKinnon. Haven't seen it. Broad City's Alana Glazer. It cuts a little close to home. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, haven't seen it. You don't want to relive that. I understand, Michael. Okay. In limited release, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, the latest documentary from Steve James. I've seen this. Good film. I recommend it. Yes, me too. And you do too. Yes. Beatrice at dinner, a holistic medicine practitioner, attends a wealthy client's dinner party after her car breaks down. It was Josh Larson's favorite film at 2017 Sundance, starring Selma Hayek. John Lithgow, Connie Britton, directed by Miguel Arteta, the one that Josh basically stalked at Sundance and told him that Cedar Rapids is an amazing film or something. And Arteta looked at him like he was a nutball, (laughs) which, hey, I like Cedar Rapids, too, but I don't think he gets that very often. I don't know. I think Arteta probably said, are you from Cedar Rapids? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Beatrice at dinner, we're, we're seeing. Okay. Yep. Josh will be glad to hear that. The Hero with Sam Elliott is out. I want to see that. And Band-Aid, now a Golden Brick nominee here on Film Spotting. Next week, Josh remains gone, but it's just going to be me flying solo. Well, not so much. I've got guests next week hmm. in the form of interviews. You will hear my conversation with the writer and star of The Big Sick, Kumail Nanjiani, mm-hmm. and Anna Lily Amrapour, the director and the writer of The Bad Batch, also of... Her debut film, which was A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Josh and I missed that when it came out. Mm. I've since caught up with it. And wow, was that a good film. So you're hanging with the auteurs. I'm hanging with the auteurs on Film Spotting. If you liked the first edition of the Film Spotting 5, our little Q&A with Trey Schultz last week on the show, I think you'll really like Lily's answers to some of those questions. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More info is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week came from Angelica Garcia from the album Medicine for Birds. More information at Angelica Garcia. Dot net. My final biggest thank you 
to Michael Phillips for sitting in this week. This was fun despite the somber material. Despite the subject of grief, it's it's good to it's good to kind of yeah. actually go through all this and and figure out what really means. Do you something feel to like you. we've reached any catharsis here? I feel lighter. <laughs> I feel a little lighter. Good. It's, a, it's actually I just passed a little gas. Uh-huh. So I'm, okay. I'm okay. Yeah, I feel a little lighter. Well, I think we had to end on a frivolous <laughs> note, Michael. Where can listeners find your work? Well, they're going to have to find it at ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movies. Uh, and now and then I come by the film spotting uh, microphone. And, uh, you do. You know, yak a little bit with you guys. Find him on Twitter at Phillips Tribune. Thank yes, you, Michael. Thank you for film spotting. I'm Adam Kempadar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.